did I become a therapist to help people or did I become a therapist because it really helped me and I wanted to hold on to that feeling. It created a sense of meaning when I was at a low point in my life. And this is my way of giving myself something I need, even though on the surface, it's, it's me helping other people. I'm benefiting tremendously. I don't think there's anything as pure altruism because we're human beings. We experience the altruistic gesture and it impacts us in some way. And if we like it, it's not giving something away for nothing. It's we're benefiting tremendously from it. When I was in eighth grade, my middle school had a career day and a bunch of adults came to the school to give little talks about their line of work. I remember sitting at my little desk in my math classroom, surrounded by 20 or 30 other kids, our chins in our hands as we listened to someone's mom or aunt talking about being a nurse. She was standing at the front of the room, and I remember the first thing she said was, she asked us something like, why do you think someone might choose to become a nurse? To help people, a fellow student ventured. The woman at the front of the room nodded. What else? The room was not silent, but close to it, just filled with the shuffling sounds of early adolescent awkwardness. No one answered. That's the only reason, she said, a slightly incredulous tone to her voice, to help people? She went on to describe some of the other reasons someone might want to enter the nursing field, like an interest in science, the variety and novelty that come with the job, the challenging nature of the work, etc. When I look back on that experience, remember, I was one of the kids who couldn't think up any other answer to why someone would become a nurse except to help people. But from the standpoint of the line of work I'm in now, I really get where she was coming from. There are so many ways, so many careers we can choose where helping people is the central thing. And the type of helping that we are interested in and pursue says at least as much about us, if not more, than the fact that we want to help in general. Yet, if you ask a therapist why we decided to get into this field, the answer you're most likely to get, to help people. And okay, sure. But what are some of the other, deeper, more complicated, maybe less flattering answers? Why did we become therapists? And why is it important to look at those reasons up close? I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That, the podcast where we talk about the things it feels like a therapist can't say. On this episode, I'm talking with Ben Feynman and Carrie Wieda, co-hosts of Very Bad Therapy, a podcast about what goes wrong in the counseling room and how it could go better. And on that podcast, they not only feature client stories about negative experiences with therapy, they also call into question a lot of the conventional wisdom about what makes therapy effective, what makes therapists skillful. And I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation about the reasons we become therapists, what we signal to people with our status as therapists, and the implications that has for our clinical work. You'll hear us talk about the importance of reciprocity and exchange in the therapeutic relationship, the relationship between self-presentation and clinical efficacy, how clients' impressions of us can be leveraged to create more effective therapeutic experiences, and the interplay of the conscious and unconscious motivations we have for doing this work and how they show up in the therapy room. Ben and Carrie, I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you so much for being on. Oh, thanks for having us. I'm excited. Yeah, this is going to be fun. So... Something um, on a recent episode of your guys' podcast um, really piqued my interest. So 
it was the episode what the elephant in the therapy room is that, that that was the title i think yeah so and talking about the idea of social signaling and there was this moment ben where you you started talking about the times that we get asked right what the therapists get asked why did you become a therapist and you were starting to say like you know we all will share some variation on the same answer. And I think I was like puttering around the kitchen and I, as I was listening to the episode, then at the same time, I said out loud, as you said on the episode, to help people, right? Because that's, it's just, we know that's, that's the answer. And then, you know, you went on to say, you know, this question about like, but if there are all these other layers, which of course we know there, there have to be, what are those? You know, what impact are those other pieces having uh why we become therapists that's beyond just to help people you know pure altruism or or whatever it is i'd love to start exploring that question you know maybe just starting with um i think what we think is probably the place where we've maybe given what we think is the most correct answer right which is when we're applying to grad school um did you guys get asked in your essay or at your interview why you wanted to be a therapist oh yeah of course and and I think I did what most people do, as I say, I want to help people. And here's my backstory that has led me to this wonderful place of wanting to help people. Please let me in. What was your backstory? Oh, gosh. Um, so before I was a therapist, I was a professional poker player. I lived in Las Vegas. Uh, the day I graduated from undergrad, I packed up a U-Haul and drove cross country and moved to Vegas. And I lived there for 12 years. It was a lot of fun. It was exciting. At some point, I felt vaguely dissatisfied with many aspects of my life. And the the work aspect was, if you play poker for a living, it is inherently self-serving. If you win, somebody else is losing. And for me, that started to feel not great, uh, especially when you sit across from somebody who is is struggling, who you can tell needs the money they're losing. It brings up a lot of cognitive dissonance when you're sitting there trying to get it from them. I was also in a long-term relationship with uh, the first person I was ever in a relationship with. Uh, we had met when I was 19. And he and I had grown apart, and that relationship ended. I was frustrated with my career, and so on a whim, I just decided to move from Vegas to Los Angeles. And it didn't take me long to start realizing that I had a lot of personal growth I needed to do. And I don't think that I'm anything special. I'm just another person. But I found a tremendous sense of peace and healing in allowing things to not be okay. I had been raised to always think positive, work towards fixes, not get into my emotions. And it was the first time I really allowed myself to access those soft spots within me. And it was so transformative that I thought, I would love to help other people on this same journey. And those two forces combined of dissatisfaction with work, dissatisfaction with my relationship, kind of led to this, this looking within and I said, huh, I really helped myself. Now I want to go and help other people. And that's when I decided to become a therapist. That is an incredible backstory, actually. Like, I can totally see as you were saying that I was like, wow, I can really see why that helped you get into grad school. Like, that's a fantastic story. And it's an interesting story. I'm remembering when I was sitting in my interview and everybody's almost everyone else besides me, their story was about like a nonprofit they'd worked at. So like being a, a like having the professional poker player background and all of that is such a I can imagine as like an interviewer, I would have like, you know, from the snoozing kind of like, OK, you know, another nonprofit story, I would have like sat up and then taken notice to that one. 
I made sure to brag excessively. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie, what about you? What was your, uh, was it your essay or your interview? What was your, um, you know, your spiel, your I want to help people story? I've always been pretty upfront about, I guess, the less altruistic reasons why I'm in this field. Um, so I was an actor before, um, and I had been acting like as my job for about 10 years in Los Angeles and had gotten to the point where I realized how much I hated the industry. As a woman, I w in my 30s, I was aging out of the <laughs> industry. Well, I was approaching that like sweet spot where you either uh, play a mom or you don't play anything and then you come out the other end. Yeah. Um, so I was approaching that kind of spot and also just realizing, you know, how incredibly like unfulfilling being an actor for a job was um, being an actor as a art form as an expression of like, you know, something that you love to do that you're passionate about is wonderful. Um, but getting paid for it is an entirely different thing. And, uh, so I was trying to think of what my life would look like for the rest of my years in my, in my declining years. <laughs> and I was really taking stock of what do I hate about my life right now? And what do I like about me and my life right now? And I knew I wanted a job where I didn't have to drive all over town um, for auditions. I literally, my, like one of my top priorities was uh, a job where I could drive to the same place every day, have a parking spot and and sit in one spot and and not have to like perform um for for work. Uh, so that was that was top of of my list. And I wanted something where I could make a comfortable living. I wanted something that was uh, uh, creative. I wanted something that was that I could have control over, that I could, you know, essentially run a small business um, because I didn't want to work in a company again. I had long before the acting been in the nonprofit world and uh, didn't want to go return to that. I was pretty much um, I was pretty upfront about like, here's where my life has been. I want something different. I'm looking for something that is engaging, that is that is a constant source of like learning. There's always something new to learn and something where at the end of the day, I will go home feeling like I did something productive and useful. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the extent of the altruism um, <laughs> for me. <laughs> and that's how I ended up here. <laughs> Actually, before... Um we met today or yesterday I pulled up my grad school admissions essay to see what I had written. And I realized they actually didn't ask in the essay, um, which is interesting, like why you wanted to become a therapist. They asked like a bunch of stuff about like the qualities. Why should we give you the time of day? Basically, that was their uh, essay content. But but I do remember really specifically in the interview when they asked because I also actually I have a really good story because I'm a third generation therapist and everybody thinks that's interesting right you know my standard joke is the uh is the godfather reference like just when I thought I was out they pulled me back in um because I really didn't I did not intend to go into this field I I knew I had an interest in it and I was like not gonna do it not gonna be you know, I don't want to do what my mom did and and whatever, so forth. So um, I had what I experienced as like a moment of like a calling, like where I was sitting with a friend of mine who is still a really close friend, you know, trying to give him a bunch of like relationship advice because he was in this relationship where the person was like treating him like crap. And he kept saying like, I'm gonna, well, what if I just, you know, stick around basically and essentially like maybe 
this person will change or whatever. And so I'd been talking to him and, and I, and I had introduced this idea of like, you teach people how you're willing to be treated. And there was this pause. Like, I will always remember this, like this pause where he stopped and then he said, I've never thought about it that way before. And then I was just like this, this is what I want to do. And did all the things and, and never looked back. So that was my, uh, that was what I said in my, you know, in my interview. And it's interesting thinking about it now from the signaling lens. What am I telling people when I tell people I'm a third generation therapist, right? Like, what are all the implications of that? Like, what is the, what am I kind of cashing in when I, when I put that out yeah. there, right? You know, in the stories that you guys shared too, there's so much that's interesting to me about like, what, what is also being said that's not being explicitly said. I'd be curious if, you became a therapist to give other people the gift that you gave your friend or on some level did you become a therapist to give yourself the gift of feeling what it felt like to give your friend the gift and the same is, is true for me did i become a therapist to help people or did i become a therapist because it really helped me and i wanted to hold on to that feeling it created a sense of meaning when i was at a low point in my life and this is my way of giving myself something i need even though on the surface it's, it's me helping other people I'm benefiting tremendously. I don't think there's anything as pure altruism because we're human beings. We experience the altruistic gesture and it impacts us in some way. And if we like it, it's not giving something away for nothing. It's we're benefiting tremendously from it. Absolutely. It's better that way, right? It's like it, it almost would worry me to have, you know, even if it were possible to to some to have somebody do a career that's like simply out of pure altruism, I'm going to do this career, right? It's like, well, okay, if we're talking, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, you're in this job and it's not, you're not getting anything from it. Like, what is that? How much are you really going to be able to show up if you don't have your own kind of um, you know, intrinsic motivations that drive you towards um, being engaged in what you're doing other than just like, well, I want I'm doing this because I want to help. I feel like there's okay, so I'm obsessed with this um, kind of way of thinking about service exchange. It's it's called service dominant logic. I'm not going to get like into it, but basically it talks about these things we do, these jobs we have in terms of competences. And it uh, really looks at these competences it, through a lens of like um, an, a networked economy, really, and how we live in a society where we are fundamentally interdependent. We None of us can exist independently of each other. And so naturally what we do is we pick one thing-ish, you know, um, to focus on. And we spend more time than the average person developing this skill, this product, this whatever, this competence. And then that is what we have to give to society. That's what we have then to like exchange for things that other people have, you know, they've spent their time becoming really good at. And I think that's really beautiful, but I, and I agree with you. I don't, I don't think that there's a whole lot of benefit in somebody developing a competence that they don't derive some sort of fulfillment or um, satisfaction from. Mm-hmm. That's so fascinating. I'm definitely, I'll be Googling that later because I that sounds like a really super interesting. It's amazing. Yeah. Can you um, ex explain it to me? if you? Because I've heard Carrie <laughs> talk about this and I still have no idea what she's talking about. So Reva, How if you figure you this out. It's 
<laughs> Please let me know. I'm going to draw you a diagram, a Ben. I don't know what part you're confused about. <laughs> um, I, I love that, though, because it's like it's a sense of like you're talking about like on a macro level, what creates social cohesion, right? Is like this sense that we have this reciprocity with one another. And like, yes, I'm getting something out of what I share or give and allowing somebody else to share or give something to me with me also exactly. allows both of us to benefit. And that that's a Absolutely. good thing. It doesn't need to be this like pure, you know, pure of heart, altruistic, right. you know, throw myself on the sword sort of situation. So I'm interested in, you know, one of the the questions you were you were posing, Ben, on the on the episode that we were talking about that. What do we signal to people when we become therapists? And I think that's a there's something very complex about that because I'm not even sure. I think there's things that we probably we go into this field and people assume things about us based on you know, the status that there's things about that that we like, probably, and then things also that maybe like not so much like assumptions that, you know, you know, things that we're putting out there signaling just by virtue of having taken on this job that maybe like, we didn't expect or doesn't feel true or anywhere in that realm. So I'm curious if, if that's something you guys have given any thought to and either of you feel free to to jump in. Boy, I, I feel like I have no idea what I'm signaling to people. Mm. I, I think I could take a I guess there's a good anecdote to describe what I get when I tell people I'm a therapist. I have a, a group of friends from college and the last two years we've done a Zoom secret Santa. And both times <laughs> my person has given me a mug that says, keep talking, I'm diagnosing you. So I have two of these now and I'm not going to the secret Santa again because I don't want a third one. <laughs> but when I, when I tell people I'm a therapist, oftentimes the response has something to do with, you know, knowing stuff about people, reading people, diagnosing people, whatever the like the pop culture idea of what a therapist does is. And I'm very quick to correct them and say, no, 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 like that's I'm not that type of therapist. I don't like fixing people's problems. I don't like telling people what to do. I like asking questions to help people realize what's true within themselves rather than me deciding that for them and telling them what they need. That feels really important to me, and I don't know why. I could guess, but I, I almost never let it just sit when the assumption is made that I'm the kind of therapist who will diagnose and fix and instruct, because that isn't me. And so I think it what that suggests, just brainstorming, is I think I am signaling that I am a deeply empathic person, that I want to help people by being empathic, not by any kind of inner wisdom that I can tell people what to do or fix their problems. But I want other people to know that about me. Mm -hmm. And it's not a conscious process. I don't wake up every day and say, how can I convince people that I'm empathic? Right. But I think it it, so, it helps to socially construct the reality I want to live in about myself. I want people to see that quality in me because it's something I deeply value about myself. And it's weird to talk about because it feels very self-serving to say, I want other people to acknowledge my empathy. But on some level, I think that is true about me. I feel incredibly seen when somebody says that about me, whether it's a client, a friend, a family member, a stranger. That makes me feel better than anything else when that gets reflected back to me. And so I think on some level, that's probably why I became a therapist, is to, to cash in some of that on a daily basis. Carrie, I'd love, I'd love for you to let me know if anything I said you completely disagree with, because you know me about as well as anybody else. <laughs> oh, no, I completely agree with you. And I think what's so interesting is uh, 
when you tell people you're a therapist, something in the interaction suggests to you that they think you are the di- the quote unquote diagnosing type of therapist, right? And I think that has a lot to do with like the cultural scripts that we have about like what a therapist means and how that hangs on certain people, right? There's something about you that culturally reads, when you say you're a therapist, it reads differently than when I say I'm a therapist, right? It's been an interesting dichotomy for me or transition, I suppose, because I get a very different response from people when I did say I'm a therapist, as opposed to saying I'm an actor. I'm a small, very white, very blonde girl looking, young, young looking woman. And when I say I'm an actress, like that comes across very uh, shallow, very Nobody thinks I'm a Shakespearean actor. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) But when I say I'm a therapist, I think that I instantly get, oh, obviously you must be empathic. Obviously you must be a a listener type person, um, a more uh, maternally kind of person. And also they assume I'm a little bit smarter than they used to think I was when I was an actor. But I don't think anyone's ever thought I was a quote unquote diagnosing type of therapist. That is fascinating. Yeah. So what about what about my vibe is is putting that out into the world? Like your entire vibe. Look at you. Are you kidding me? Like from the <laughs> yeah, collared polo shirt to the books in the background. <laughs> like, you know, when you had your shaggy COVID hair, maybe not so much, but like you have like a nicely trimmed little beard situation. Like all you're missing is the pipe and maybe like the tweed jacket with, with the, the patches, elbow patches. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's such a fascinating thing um, that you're bringing up, Carrie, because like the way what we're signaling, I think, is like shaped by like how we, you know, visually present or like our persona or like our personal qualities Mm -hmm. or what, you know, first impressions and, and all of that, you know, and gender and race and all of those pieces must come into play so significantly. And then like culturally, you know, the broader cultural level of like what what does it mean to be a therapist and then people's subcultural those elements too of like, what does it mean in this community? If I walk into like a small town in Alabama and say I'm a therapist, my guess is probably it's going to get a different, people are going to get a different read on me than if I'm here in my hometown, you know, of Portland and tell someone I'm a therapist, it's going to be a different um, set of assumptions, um, which is interesting to think about. I've gotten very uncomfortable sometimes with like the feedback I've gotten sometimes in like social situations when I've said I'm a therapist, I don't know if it's like they're trying to stroke my ego and they think that's what I want to hear or if this is what they really think about therapists. But a lot of this like, oh, you work with trauma. Like, I could never do that. That is so good of you. You know, this like, what a great, you know, good for you kind of a thing. Um, And I and again, you know, to hearken back to this altruism I certainly hope that like there's some aspect to it that is I genuinely want to help people heal and, you know, suffer less and, and all of that stuff. You know, I believe that that's a, a part of it, but it's not I'm not Mother Teresa here or whatever, you know, and I'm not yeah. I don't think I'm a particularly nice person. I remember, you know, the big five, the big five personality test. I always score like right around average on agreeableness. Like I'm not like the most um, just like unflaggingly nice and compassionate, like human being. Like I know much, much nicer people than me who are, you know, some of whom are therapists and some are not. Um, And so getting that feedback, it's like this sense of like, I, I, I guess like I feel like I just told you about something about myself and then now it feels like you believe something that's not true about me, which is a strange, a strange sensation. I, 
I, I totally get that. So um, something that's weird for me is that I've, uh, I graduated last year um, and I haven't seen clients since I graduated. I haven't like started the whole licensing process post-graduation. And so I have felt really weird describing myself as a therapist when I'm not actively seeing clients for that very reason. There is a cachet, I think, and maybe, I don't know, Ben, maybe it's a more of a, a woman, women get or benefit from it more than men. I'd be interested to hear, but like, I definitely feel that when I say I'm a therapist, it's like, wow, that is so <laughs> noble. That's really great. So I, yeah, I feel weird, like taking on that cloak or that, um, getting that cachet when I feel like maybe right now it's like, not really, I don't deserve it. I don't think I get that much. Interesting. Huh. I, I definitely get more of, more of the like, oh, you know, you must know things about people and diagnose them as opposed to it's so brave of you to work with trauma. How noble that <laughs> you must be so empathic. <laughs> I think I get the social construction of what a male therapist looks like. Yeah. And it sounds yeah. like the two of you get a social construction of what the female therapist looks like. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And that's fascinating. I've never considered this. I haven't either. And I'm I'm totally I, I'm totally fascinated too, especially because like I am much more motivated uh by being seen as intelligent than I am as being seen as empathic. Um it's very like sure. both sides of my family, it's very important to be smart. Like every person on both of those sides just really like that that you know implicit and sometimes explicit message is just you know that yeah. drum is being beaten so so i'm fully inculcated with th with that um you know that it's important that i be smart um and so uh, there are people who believe that if you have a master's degree you must be smart which is you know i'm just gonna right. say for the record not the case um <laughs> no correlation in my opinion um <laughs> None. but i can't say that i haven't at times tried to cash in that sense of expertise a little bit if i if i hear someone saying you know something i think is total bullshit about mental health or trauma or you know you know whatever you know, thing that's relevant to our field. I've said as a therapist before, you know, I've I've pulled that rank a little bit, you know, in certain sure. conversations. It's certainly not the primary response that people are like, oh, you must be so smart or oh, you must be really like, you know, know all this stuff and be this expert and have this, you know, as much as I get the like, it's so noble and good for you, you know. Right. Um, and I hadn't thought about that being a gendered phenomenon, but it totally makes sense that it would be. I love this conversation. All of this can be used to make therapy more effective, and it's exciting to think about. And this is one of the reasons I've so enjoyed getting to know Carrie so well, is that she's obsessive about research on things like marketing, first impressions, sales, how to take that and adapt it to therapy mm -hmm. to make therapy more effective. And I think she just enjoys it in general, but yes. as applied to therapy. So Carrie, you mentioned earlier, I have all the books behind me, and like you know this, Carrie, but none of this was here before I started seeing clients on telehealth. But I, I want them to experience me in a certain way that makes it more likely that I can help them. And for me, that's suggesting that I know things. I, I don't give a shit if I know things about therapy because I don't think that's how therapy really works <laughs> at, a, at a core level. But I think clients come in expecting me to be an expert of some sort. And I'm not going to sit down and be like, all right, this is exactly what we're doing, unless that's what they want. But I think it's helpful that the environment they see me in communicates something that amplifies their belief in what a therapist who can help looks like. And so if I'm carrying cultural representations of what a male therapist looks like, maybe it's more likely that clients will come in and see me as 
like the diagnosing expert type. And if that's not what they want, and if it's, that's not what I think would be helpful, we can work to deconstruct that in some way that may not present itself if I don't have the awareness that this is how people might default to seeing me in this setting. And I think that's true for every single therapist and every single client, that something unique happens based on the biases and perceptions people are bringing in and how you feed into those or dismantle them based on your appearance, what you say, what you do. And I, I love the fact we're talking about this because it really helps me see something completely new. That This is like one more thing that is up for negotiation with clients mm-hmm. that I can ask about when mm-hmm. it's assessing what are their expectations for therapy. And it may be that they don't even realize it, but part of what they're saying is reflected back in what what they think should be expected of a therapist who looks like me that has a bunch of books behind him. It's so fascinating. It's totally fascinating. Well, and I think that that opens that, uh, you know, can of worms of the idea of like professionalism and having, you know, a certain appearance because like, you know, for example, like I have a lot of tattoos, people a hundred percent that impacts how they view me as a therapist and the kind of therapist that they expect me to be Um, like the teenage or like I don't work with a a ton of teenagers, but I do work with some older teens and, and, you know, then younger um, 20s. it immediately establishes a layer of trust that like I don't think yeah. would be there if I didn't have a lot of tattoos. It's a, it's like a just quick shortcut to, you know, getting trust from that age group. And I'm, I'm remembering now, actually, as you were talking, um, Ben, about the supervisor I had in um, – I, she was a teacher of mine in grad school and adjunct, and then she was my internship supervisor. And she was in her 60s, and she had a, a like streak of purple always dyed in her hair. And and she actually talked about like that that was one of the things, one of the reasons she did that is so that she could signal to clients who were either queer or like younger adults or teenagers something about herself that wasn't just like I'm a 60 something year old lady, you know, that yeah. looks otherwise, yeah. you know, very conventional and and all of that. So. Yeah, there's just like so many pieces of this um, that can apply. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, this is something I've talked about on our podcast before. Like, I I felt like I was in a very unique position coming into this field after been, being an actor for so long, doing just tons of auditions. I have a really good idea of how I read to people when I walk into a room. Right. It's written out for me every time I get an audition. I, I know that that's what people think of. They think of me when they read, you know, certain sentences, right? For the most part, none of those, in my mind, were necessarily conducive to a client having an enormous amount of faith in me as a therapist, um, especially uh, clients because I was working in a in, during grad school working in a clinic where it was a training clinic, um, and we were all very upfront about it being a training clinic. And you know, we had to tell our clients that you know I am not licensed; I am being supervised. We talk about you in supervision, all those kind of things. But I wanted to give my clients who who are already coming in knowing that you know, they couldn't afford or couldn't access, you know, a a quote unquote real therapist. They had to settle for a therapist in training, right? I wanted them to have confidence in me that I felt like there was a chance I wouldn't be able to instill that from the moment they first met me based on my auditioning experience. And so I made the decision to start wearing glasses uh, in sessions. And I tried to, you know, dress quote unquote professionally, but not like not overly like what we would call quote like professional in that costume, you know, but something to make me look a little bit more um, uh, intellectual, more competent rather than how I know I typically present. 
I have no data to suggest it was it was helpful. You know, I never did get asked, and we got warned. I don't know if you guys ever heard this, but it got warned a lot in in grad school that uh, you're going to have clients who say, "You're so young, how could you possibly be my therapist?" You know, and I never, I never got that. Never got that. So that was uh, that was encouraging. To kind of bring it back around to this piece of like, what are the reasons we become therapists that aren't the obvious or, you know, easily accessible ones? Obviously, this is a, a small data pool here of like N equals three, but I, it's not lost on me, right? That, you know, in this conversation we have, you know, on, on one person as a former professional poker player, one person as an actor, and then, you know, one person is uh, somebody who has intimate knowledge of what therapists look like in their personal lives and in their professional mm -hmm. lives, which is not mm -hmm. the same thing, right? Um, so like, growing up, you know, my mom was a school counselor. So sometimes I would go, um, you know, meet her after school. Uh, and the kids who knew her as a school counselor, sometimes they would come up to me and be like, you are so lucky she's your mom. And I was just <laughs> like, eh. you know, like you don't, you know, they knew the counselor version of her and that's it, you know, and I knew the, you know, the mom and the more, you know, complex person version of her you know, in that context, it's it's an easy window onto seeing something significant about self-presentation, right? And so I think it's yeah. interesting to see that connection, you know, between the three of us as people who, for whatever various reasons and in various aspects of life, are very aware of self-presentation. Um, I wonder about that as a quality of therapists and as, as uh, a shared, um, something about a shared experience there of being oriented to that that aspect of human interaction, human relationships. Yeah. More or less, that was a large part of the focus of my thesis uh, for my master's program. It was focusing on how can we, what, what are we leaving on the table in terms of things that we could use to impact positively the therapeutic relationship? And I do think that there is th this wide open opportunity for us to use the ways that we, what we signal, the ways we signal to our clients um, in a therapeutic way. Right. I, I think that it's totally possible. And I think the three of us are, are totally on board with that. I've certainly met my fair share of folks in this profession who um, get really hung up on the uh, falseness of the idea that we might be presenting something, um, that there is this kind of subtle messaging sometimes in some corners of this field that you must be authentic at all times and that there is no higher purpose for a therapist than to cultivate ultimate authenticity in the room with a client and that anything that is anything less than your truly authentic self is a failing in you as a clinician. You're, you're not working hard enough um, to bring yourself to the work. I really push back on that. First of all, I don't think it's necessary. I, I love what you're saying, Reeve, about your parents, like having, uh, you know, a home life, a home self and a work self. I think that we, you know, we all naturally do that. Like that is a thing that we do. There's amazing research and, and, and theory that goes back on that very topic, like decades and decades. Um, it's not a new concept. I think that there's something there that we have an opportunity to really flesh out as clinicians in terms of like, how can we use these things, use the way we signal what we, how we appear, how can we bend those things to serve our clients? 
Yeah, I think the authenticity thing is is really interesting because I think to me, you know, I see that as a very sort of contemporary American idea, right? This idea that we're just there's we have a, one authentic self and the goal is to like be that person across contexts and that's like the most truthful um way to be in the world, right? I'm very impacted by this book I I read actually called Culture Shock Morocco and it's a it's part of a series of books about like they're written for people who are moving to a foreign country and it's cool. a series of English language books and and my husband and I happened to be we were just going on vacation to Morocco but he happened to pick up this book and it was really super fascinating because one of the things the pieces of advice it gave basically for people who were moving to Morocco was if you meet someone and you develop a relationship with them in a certain context and then you meet them you run into them somewhere else right so um say you you know you pass someone every day working at a, a tea shop and you talk to them every day at the tea shop and then you happen to run into them when they're off work you know at you know, another store, you happen to run into them in a social context and they treat you completely differently and don't act as they do in that, you know, tea shop encounter relationship that you have. That's just what it's like there. That like the culture of Morocco is that people have different personas that they embody in different contexts and that's not seen as inauthentic it's not seen as being phony or fake it's just that like who you are is a context specific identity um and i found that to be a very freeing thought in comparison to this idea of like you know being the same person all the time you know and i think you know especially like in this work you know there's no possible way i can be you know, I, with my daughter, the same person that I am with my clients, you know, like I like, with, it wouldn't be good to be anyway, but like, I can't, you know, the patience that I can have when I see somebody one hour a week and the, you know, like all of that versus like, there's this person is following me around, you know, every second of my waking hours at home, you know, <laughs> I can't embody that level of patience. It's just not possible. And so just to remove the pressure of that, that we have to be just the same, you know, embodied, most actualized, whatever version of ourself in every every single interaction or relationship. I just don't think that's possible. You know, obviously you guys have heard a lot or like read a lot of stories about people's like negative experiences uh, with with therapy. With the caveat, of course, that, you know, perhaps people have their own representations of like what happens in their therapy experience that isn't the therapist may have another story or the, it may not be like the objective single truth or whatever. I'm curious about like as you've, you know, accumulated all these narratives that people have, all these stories, you know, if there if you guys have any thoughts about like what perhaps like those stories reveal about some of the less savory or like less altruistic reasons people uh, take on this this role. The most disturbing stories we hear have a pretty consistent theme of taking advantage of somebody in a, vul a vulnerable position where you you have a therapist who sees an opportunity in somebody to, to satisfy their own needs for power, for control, for isolation. And it's, I mean, we've maybe only heard half a dozen stories that fit into this category, but they are strikingly familiar. Once you hear one, you feel like you've heard them all in some capacity. And it's somebody who is using the client for something deeply unsettling because 
they are a therapist seemingly for their own gain. They recognize that this is access to vulnerable people, and it gives them some kind of sense of satisfaction to have that power and control over others. So these are stories where the therapist has groomed their client, has engaged in sexual relationships with the client, has isolated a client from their family, from their friends, has uh, tried to physically control the client, like inviting them to move in, like merging lives almost, um, really like messed up stuff that at least for me, I, I didn't have anybody in my graduate program or at my training sites or colleagues I know that I would even remotely suspect would do something like this. So it's really shocking to hear these stories because you almost don't want to believe that somebody would get into this field who has those intentions because there's, there's not a whole lot of glory in becoming a therapist. There's certainly not a whole lot of money in becoming a therapist. It takes a lot of time to get licensed, to get your degree. But I think it does attract some very small, small, probably less than 1% of our, of our field who are, do not have, they don't want to help other people. Right. And they may think they want to help other people, but they want to help other people because it gives them a power trip or it gives them the ability to help people, which is in actuality manipulating them to do things to satisfy the therapist. And those stories are incredibly disturbing. And Carrie and I always leave those interviews just feeling like dirty. Mm-hmm. Like it is unsettling. And to, to hear the courage of people who have been through it and have come out on the other side and say, I can talk about this now and know that this wasn't my fault is incredibly inspiring. It's just tragic to realize that those are the minority. I think a lot of clients who have this experience and are vulnerable in a way that allows, not allows them, that's terrible victim blaming language, but are vulnerable in a way that a, th- a, a therapist will take advantage of. Right. I, I don't think many of them end up telling their story in an empowered way. I think they just get very harmed by the, the very few among our colleagues who are, who are bad actors. Mm-hmm. Is your impression, I mean, This is obviously hard to suss out from, you know, a third party position. But is your impression um, that those therapists who are engaged in that like level of extreme behavior, is your impression that they know, like, is it like it's a conscious decision to like go into the field knowing like this is a way I can access people in a vulnerable state? Or is it more, you know, from your assessment, just like there's some self-deception there in terms of like, oh, I'm really helping this person by doing some Mm. terrible thing to them. I don't know. My guess would be the latter, the Mm -hmm. self-deception you're describing, but I really don't feel confident. Carrie, I'm curious if you have thoughts on it. Yeah, I think I have a slightly different take. I don't think it's a like deception and I don't think it's a malevolence. I don't think that even though these worst case folks and they're awful um I, I don't think that they went into these with the intent to harm mm-hmm. i th- my sense of it of these people again having heard these stories i don't i don't know the therapist in question but hearing of their actions what the sense that i get is they actually think so much of themselves that they think the greatest help that they can give to somebody is more of themselves mm-hmm. um it's a very selfish, a very self-centered kind of approach, I think. But that's the only way that it all makes sense to me. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me to have somebody who um, 
is a malevolent person and wants to hurt other people, so they're going to go into to grad therapy. school and do all these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. I don't, I just it won't get you through. Like go to law school or something. But <laughs> I have talked to a lot of people who are uh, going, who are applying to grad school because I, I coach uh, folks who are applying to to MFT programs in California, and every once in a while, I talk to somebody who truly thinks that like they are entering this field and they are going to like just they're going to be all the change that their clients will ever need like they they really have that it's like a, it's a narcissistic like a grandiose sort of, attitude yeah mm-hmm. yeah and like if that's how you've entered the field thinking like you are god's gift to your clients i think it's a lot easier and it makes a lot more sense to um justify cultivating an inappropriate relationship with a client or gaslighting a client um, because I don't think it's intentional. I think it's, you know, the, when the gaslighting happens, it's, it's, they really believe <laughs> that it's the client who's making all these wrong choices and doing all this wrong stuff. They don't, they truly don't think it's them. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how I have perceived those folks. I am so glad that you said that because that was eye opening. Hearing you say that, I agree 100%. Now that you've put words to it, I think, yeah, cool. that sounds that sounds spot on. Awesome. We solved it. That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I think especially, you know, as you're saying, it's like if somebody is, and I, I certainly believe there's people out there in the world who are very much consciously seeking opportunities to take advantage of vulnerable people. But this is a pretty, this would be like a pretty roundabout convoluted way to, you know, satisfy that urge. And so the idea of it as this grandiose impulse of like, I am this say, you know, this sort of savior complex and, you know, just what my own impulses are the ones that are what's best for this person, you know, Mm -hmm. in front of me, Mm -hmm. it makes sense that that would be a driving factor. Um, You know, to me, the the kind of take home message to that for people who are like, more normal, (laughs) run of the mill therapists who are (laughs) in that extreme, um, you know, grandiose, uh, like boundary violating, um, you know, orientation. I mean, to me, it really hammers home this need to to cultivate our awareness of all of the stuff that we're bringing to uh, why we were attracted to, to doing this work, you know, because like, I mean, and I don't think somebody with that level of grandiosity is not going to have the introspection to see like, oh, I want to be seen as, you know, the savior of people. And therefore that's why, you know, like if they could see that about themselves, they wouldn't end up in those situations. But I think for people who do have, you know, more of a capacity to self-reflect, you know, just to, to go back to what we were talking about at the beginning about that piece of like, you know, that moment I had when I was sitting with my friend, you know, and I had this moment of like, oh my God, it felt so good to have this impact on someone where I changed their perspective on something in a meaningful way. If that's like a need and a desire that I have that I'm bringing into this work, I think it's so important for me to be aware of that. Because if I'm not aware of that, how is that maybe going to manifest or show up in ways that are not actually benefiting the client or where it's not really appropriate or where it might be easy to think like that's that's the need this client has but really that's that's not about them that's about me you know i think we all have areas like that um you know it's it's almost like it's that person of the therapist work to really look at that stuff and and examine where it's potentially showing up with our clients what 
each of you just said really opens my eye. Like I'm having a moment because, you know, I said I, I don't think I've ever met a therapist who falls into the category that would be one of these therapists who would harm a client that way. I haven't met somebody who fits my description of it. I have met therapists who fit your description of it, Carrie. Yeah. And, you know, being in, in therapist Facebook groups, you know, the, the kerosene on the fire is social media. There definitely are, are therapists out there who I know personally. I, I still think it's a very small percentage, but they are definitely out there. And like you take your conceptualization of it, Carrie, and Reva, what you just said about the importance of doing that, that work within. And boy, that feels so important now, because if it's not, these are people who are just manipulative trying to satisfy their own needs, but people with genuinely good intentions who don't realize that they're not God's gift to their clients, they're not God's gift to therapy. Boy, how important is it for those people to, and I mean, all of us, right. but especially the people with that significant capacity to cause harm, because what they might think is helpful is actually deeply, deeply harmful mm -hmm. to a client in a vulnerable state. Yeah, I think that that brings us to like one of the biggest takeaways that Ben and I have experienced from doing our show and, and hearing all these stories of bad therapy, which run the gamut from like, you know, grooming and like serious trauma down to, you know, how like a therapist was consistently late or how a therapist brought up a, a rate increase, you know, um, things that like, you know, we as clinicians might, you know, kind of excuse or write off um, or think is not that big of a deal, but comes across to a client as bad therapy. Things that are like everyday ruptures that we all could potentially find ourselves in that situation. Yeah. And we have like and we will and we have like we've all done it. We all will do it. That's the, the inevitability of making a mistake is really what I think Ben and I have learned from from all these stories. And the only um, there's no way to stop yourself from doing bad therapy at some point, no matter how you're approaching the work. Totally. And I feel like the only uh, tool we have truly is humility to avoid the defensiveness that ends up being like at the core of almost all these bad therapy experiences. Um, what you think of yourself as a therapist um, it, from the person who thinks they're God's gift to the person who like is crippled by imposter syndrome. Um, it's a safe bet. If you enter into the therapy room, trying to hold a sense of humility, I think that that is where you're going to be able to, uh, avoid harm the most before we uh wrap up i would love to hear so you know i have this idea of the a therapist can't say that moment you know being like an experience where you said something and then you know you have that feeling immediately when you hear yourself say it that like that's not um, something that a therapist is supposed to say, you know, whether that's with grad school situation or client or colleagues or even people who, you know, have out in the world who aren't connected to the field, who have their own ideas of what um, a therapist is supposed to be like. I'd love to hear um, if you guys uh, have a moment like that that you'd like to share. The thing that I find that I will really only freely say to Ben really most of the time <laughs> off the air is that I am really understanding and being struck by the fact that like psychotherapy isn't a real thing. Our concepts of mental health 
are a construct. Uh, psychotherapy is a construct created to deal with the mental health construct. It's not an objective, actual thing. And yet there's this um, a paradox where as a therapist, you have to f- be fully invested in the thing in order to be effective. And if you are, then it is a thing if the client is also fully on board. But at the same time, uh, I really push back against the therapists who are, you know, uh, there was a raging debate in one of the Facebook groups uh, the other day. All therapists should um, be in therapy, should have their own therapist. Because if you're not willing to do the work, uh, then, you know, you have no right being in a therapy room with with a client. But the assumption there is that therapy is the only way to do whatever work the work is mm-hmm. the work mm-hmm. is that is necessary for you to hold space for another person when it is a completely recent invention of the modern western world and there are uh, so many other things that can contribute to well-being or whatever it is that we are putting in this bucket that we then call mental health um so th- that's the thing that I I watch. I'm very careful what groups I will say something like that in, because boy howdy, does that does that rub people the wrong way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I think mine's even more of a downer, but it's on. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready it's for the something downers. That I, yeah, that I really only say to Carrie in moments of <laughs> exasperation, which is I genuinely think most people who want to become a therapist shouldn't mm. should become coaches instead. Because there is no conclusive research to show that a graduate education and training and experience actually makes you more effective as a therapist, which is impossible to believe. But this isn't the mechanism to get more effective as a therapist. Mm -hmm. It is the mechanism to get very much in debt uh, and to have to work for free and to have to work for a low salary before you get licensed. But then to get a license to become a culturally sanctioned healer. To to burn out, etc. But if you invest the same amount of resources into marketing, into sales, into learning how to really sell your message to prospective clients so that you are getting the exact right people walking through your door and their expectations of what you can offer are precisely matched with who you are, you're going to help more people. You're going to be better at what you do. It's really discouraging to think of it that way. But you could become a coach in less time, help more people, be less in debt, and not have to jump through all the hoops that therapists do. And I think a lot of us have unrealized buyer's remorse and envy and resentment towards coaches, towards Instagram therapists, towards whoever, towards Jeff Gunther on TikTok, <laughs> right? I think people feel <laughs> resentment yeah. because they're not doing that right? and they wish they could. But there's all these barriers and they've already invested so much of their their life into having a diploma, which feels great. And it is great. It is a huge achievement. It is an altruistic thing to do. But I think most of us would be better off having become coaches in the first place. It's such an interesting can of worms, though, to me, because like I have thought about so like I know the state laws like vary, right? But so how it is in Oregon is, you know, if you have an educational background that qualifies you to become a licensed mental health professional, you are under the purview of the board. So somebody with. Oh, yes. interesting. Yeah. So if somebody wanted if somebody with no 
who doesn't have my master's degree, somebody with whatever, just who has no uh, formal yeah. education in counseling, wanted to become like a trauma coach, right? Mm -hmm. They could. They're not, there's no wow. reason they can't. They're not under the purview of the board. No one can tell them not to. If I wow. decided to give up my license, I could not do that because I am under the oversight of the board forever by virtue of the degree that I have. That's crazy to me. That is yeah. batshit crazy to me that, that your ability to help people wow. is confined. Now, exactly, right. Oh my. Yeah. I mean, it's great. It's great that there, like, that access exists, that people can become trauma specialists mm -hmm. or like peer support counselors is a, is a buzzword. I think those things are incredible. But the idea that that is paired with now limiting how you can help people is just hilarious. I, it's wow. so it's way. so bizarre. And then um, the other thing that you said about the marketing that I thought was really interesting. Actually, um, you know, one of the things that the the things that you guys have reiterated right on your podcast is that it, that research that says experience doesn't improve outcomes, right? That it doesn't improve improve the quality of of your work as a therapist. And I was thinking about my own experience because I'm I'm personally I'm very resistant to that idea. I understand that that's what it shows, but I feel very it pokes me every time I hear it. That's actually, and this is like a big compliment coming from me. That's actually one of the reasons I like listening to you guys is because like often like there are like these little like things that bug me about like the stuff that you share, um, but it bugs me in a way that feels very productive. And so I keep listening. I actually don't listen to very many therapy related podcasts, but that's, I think that's why I like keep coming back to yours. But so um, I know there was a point for me where I feel like I really got a lot better. Um, mm -hmm. And I started having much improved client outcomes. Um, I don't track them formally, but you know, in terms of what I was seeing and the feedback I was getting and and retention and all of that. Some of it I think does have to do with my own self-work. I think the majority of it is is it happened when I changed my marketing and I started getting clients that were the right, like sure. the right fit for me. Then everything changed. Fascinating. And I started doing more the work I was doing was more just clearly more effective. And I think it was a huge, huge impact. And yet that's still, it's such a large percentage of people in our field who see marketing as superficial and, you know, like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you're just are in it for the money and whatever, blah, blah, blah. Carrie, that's your, that's your bat signal. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, I already said the thing that I'm not supposed to say as a therapist, but I mean, I'll say that also marketing is part of your clinical work. Yes. Like I'm like, there's no way around it. This was such a fun, fun conversation. I really, really appreciate you guys being on. And yeah, I've just, it's really gotten the wheels turning for me. It's been, it's been great to talk to you. Oh, likewise. This was so much fun. So much fun. Thanks so much for having us on. Okay. So I don't usually do long outros after my interviews, but Ben and Carrie both beautifully opened some cans of worms with their A Therapist Can't Say That moments that I've been thinking about a lot since our conversation. So I wanted to comment on those briefly before we finish. The first thing that I think is a very hot button topic is what Carrie alluded to about therapists going to our own therapy. Is that a necessary piece of doing the work? We've been talking a lot about doing the work on here, and certainly to me, it's clear that doing the work can't only mean personal therapy, but is personal therapy necessary for therapists? And if so, how much? Why exactly? What are the parameters of that? Are there things that therapists specifically need to get from therapy that we can't get other ways, etc.? Second thing, 
Ben went there. He really went there with the life coaching thing. So the whole therapy versus coaching topic is something I have very much wanted to avoid, actually. Um, my producer suggested a couple times in the nascent phases of this podcast that I do an episode on that topic, and I have been very resistant to it. Uh, specifically, I dislike turf wars. I think turf wars bring out some of the most sort of self-aggrandizing, self-righteous sides of people, and I dislike that. I think it's one of those topics where it either tends to become venomous very quickly or people are excessively careful and polite about it to avoid it becoming venomous. But I've noticed that the coaching industry continues to heat up and this whole therapy coaching topic is very much not going away. So now maybe I am going to have to do an episode on that. Fine. Third thing, marketing. Carrie said marketing is part of your clinical work. Yes, I agree. And I think we are in the midst of a transitional moment regarding the marketing issue in this field. Like 20 to 30 years ago, I think most therapists would have been absolutely mystified by that statement. And I think now that a lot of therapists are millennials like me, we are more comfortable with the idea of personal branding and having a branded public presence and so forth than prior generations of therapists. But like any transitional moment, there is still a lot of discomfort and uncertainty there. And maybe that's as it should be. There are a lot of questions about honest marketing, ethical marketing, the stuff we talked about in this episode, what we signal to clients with our marketing, how that impacts our work. I said that piece about how my clinical outcomes improved when I changed my marketing. They did. So why? And how? And what can we learn from that kind of experience? That's a whole deep dive of its own. So let's bookmark those for later, as I often say to clients about various things. And congratulations, Ben and Carrie, for having a juicy enough conversation with me that I did a much longer outro than usual to get at all that stuff. And then next time on here, I'm going to be getting into some of the stuff we explored about the importance of being in touch with all the many reasons that we became therapists. You can find Ben and Carrie and their podcast, Very Bad Therapy, at verybadtherapy.com. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to A Therapist Can't Say That on whatever your preferred platform is for listening to podcasts. And remember to share the show with your therapist friends who want to hear someone talking about all the things it feels like a therapist can't say. You can find me, Reva Stout, at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. If this episode brought something up for you that you'd like to share with me or you want to tell me about your own A Therapist Can't Say That moment, I'd love to hear from you. So please feel free to shoot me an email or send me a voice note at Reva at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. Talk to you next time.